Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Loyalist ships fleeing American colonies to the north wrecked off of St. Augustine during the American Revolution. I had often wondered, now, what smoking gun would we find? You know, what would we actually find that would uh, definitively tell us we had a Loyalist ship? How can an archaeologist look back in time into someone's heart. How do we know if they were patriots or if they were loyalists? Uh, I wasn't sure if that artifact existed, uh, and, and yet it did. We'll discuss the Florida travels of Spanish conquistador Hernando de Soto. If we can trace the exact routes, we can then unearth what have long since become these invisible traces of indigenous life. And we'll talk about the tradition of bluegrass music in the Sunshine State. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. England controlled Florida from 1763 to 1783, and the colony remained loyal to King George III throughout the entire American Revolution. British loyalists from American colonies to the north would flee to St. Augustine. A loyalist shipwreck has been excavated off of St. Augustine. Chuck Mead is director of maritime research for LAMP. From the very start of the outbreak of hostilities, Florida was a haven for refugees, for loyalists who were in uh, parts of the colonies that were just getting too hot uh, to handle. So uh, from the very start, we had uh, uh, colonists from as far as New York uh, coming down uh, to Florida. And of course, that uh, really just, uh, you know, the, the floodgates opened as the war raged on and as it became clear uh, that there was indeed going to be a new republic, that kind of the unthinkable was happening and that uh, the greatest superpower on the face of the earth was going to lose uh, against these rebels who wanted to start a new republic. And so, uh, lots and lots of refugees uh, came in to Florida. On December 18, 1782, a fleet of 16 ships carrying British loyalists left Charleston, South Carolina for the safe haven of St. Augustine, Florida. The fleet was lost just before making it to port. In 2009, the St. Augustine Lighthouse Archaeological Maritime Program, or LAMP, started searching for the loyalist shipwrecks. Like any science, we rely on predictive modeling. Uh, the ocean's a big place, and we don't have enough time or money to scan all of it for shipwrecks. So we go to documents, we go to historic maps, charts, uh, two separate but similar things, and we get the voices of the past to tell us where to look, and then we go to science. Brendan Burke is maritime historian with LAMP. We go to marine magnetometers, we use side-scan sonars and sub-bottom profilers to look at, in, and beneath the seas. We can find magnetic anomalies, we can find acoustic anomalies, and through a rigorous set of testing, 
and excavations ultimately find a wreck. Often it can take years to figure out the nature of that wreck, and with the case of storm wreck, it took a number of fuel seasons to conclusively say, this is Loyalist, this is the American Revolution. It was as black as midnight down there. So the diver, uh, I was the diver, I couldn't see a thing. Uh, and we knew that whatever wreckage might be there was buried. So we had a probe, uh, again, a low-tech tool. So this is just a 10-foot pipe uh, attached to a fire hose, attached to a water hose, and we have a, a pump on the boat that is pumping out water at pretty high pressure. So you have this pipe that's jetting water out. And so you get the pipe situated uh, vertically, and then you just sink it into the seafloor, and the weight of the pipe pushes it down, and that water just jets and cuts through the sand like a hot knife through butter. Uh, the very first probe that I laid at this uh, site didn't hit anything. It just sank into the hilt. And so I was thinking, oh, that's going to be one of those days. And we pulled up on this heavy probe, moved it over a meter, sunk it there, boom, clunked into something almost immediately, just maybe a foot uh, beneath the sand. Uh, at that point, I used the probe to jet away some of the sand. Now, that's not the, uh, the safest archaeological way to dig, but when we're testing to find out if this is a wreck or not, uh, this is a, a great method because very quickly we, I moved a little bit of the sand away and I could feel uh, with my hands. I couldn't see because it was so dark, but I could feel what was there, what I had hit. And I felt a wooden plank, I felt a stone, and I felt what was undoubtedly iron, an iron object. Uh, it was heavily encrusted, which is what iron does when it has been underwater for hundreds of years. And uh, at that point, my heart was beating, uh, racing, because with iron, with stone, with wood, you know, a, a mile or so offshore, there's only one thing that can be, and that's a historic shipwreck. A round cauldron was the first object that the LAMP team was able to excavate from the shipwreck. The discovery was made at the end of the summer excavation season, so the team would have to wait until 2010 to continue their underwater work. When summer came again, we began excavating in earnest. And we, of course, laid out a grid, uh, just like on any archaeological site, and using a dredge to excavate to suck the sand up, we began to expose artifacts, and more artifacts, and more artifacts. And it quickly became apparent that this was a really significant find. Uh, we had a lot of material culture. Um, after a, a season of digging uh, by a kind of serendipitous discovery, uh, we came out and the sand had moved uh, in an area that we hadn't even been digging before, and there were five cannons and the ship's bell. And so this was the shipwreck that kind of kept on giving. Uh, we had a lot to work with. Uh, over the next few years, uh, as we found these objects and began to bring them up and to clean them off in the laboratory, and it's quite a long process, uh, we began to narrow down the date range of our shipwreck. And so we found objects that were pretty clearly dated to the 1700s. So that was kind of our first, uh, we, okay, we know it's sometime in the 1700s. And then uh, we found more things uh, like this small uh, flintlock pistol, a uh, gentleman's pistol, uh, a box lock, and uh, that uh, dated to the second half of the 1700s. Uh, so these clues kept on pointing us in the right direction. Uh, we, you know, I, I mentioned we found a ship's bell. Well, unfortunately, there was no date on it, no markings on it, but there were, uh, there was a date on one of the cannons that we brought up, uh, a carronade, a, a small uh, gun uh, that was invented during the American Revolution. Uh, that date was 1780. So that's a perfect date for a ship that you hypothesize went down in 1782. 
The discovery of objects from the Loyalist shipwreck is an exciting story, but it's just the beginning. Archaeologists spend years carefully conserving the artifacts in a laboratory. Archaeologists sometimes don't even know what they found until the encrustation is removed. Brendan Burke. The process of bringing an artifact back to life is rarely a fast process. It takes the diligence and patience that often people assume archaeologists only have to have in the field. But that's just the beginning of the patience, because like I said, that, you know, it's the tenth of what we do. So our conservation staff, who are really scientists that blend physical sciences, chemical sciences, electrical sciences all together, have to know how to treat an artifact that might have 15 different types of materials in it. Hard materials, metals, stone, soft materials, wood, leather, paper, textiles, uh, and how to treat each component carefully so that the process for one does not disturb another. And generally speaking, that means taking something completely apart, dismantling a pistol, taking apart a lock, whatever it is for individual treatment. That process can take years. I had often wondered, now, what smoking gun would we find? You know, what would we actually find that would uh, definitively tell us we had a loyalist ship? How can an archaeologist look back in time into someone's heart? How do we know if they were patriots or if they were loyalists? Uh, I wasn't sure if that artifact existed, uh, and, and yet it did. And we found it in the form of a small, tiny, tiny object, a pewter button that had the letters RP on it with a crown. And we knew that that was a loyalist object. It is from a uniform, a British Army uniform of a provincial unit. Uh, and so these were Americans who were loyal to King George uh, in the Royal Provincials. Uh, that was the first find. So not 100% definitive, but definitely good circumstantial evidence. Uh, then we found uh, the definitive evidence, another button, uh, that had uh, the number seven and one on it, and that was a number from the 71st Regiment. And that regiment was in Charleston and evacuated on December 18, 1782, on the last fleet to leave Charleston. And so when we have that button, and since that time we found uh, uh, regimental buttons from the 63rd Regiment, the 30th Regiment, the New York Volunteers, or the 3rd American Regiment, all of those regiments were in Charleston on that fleet. And so all of that together on a shipwreck tells us this ship had to have been associated with that fleet. And so that's how we really know, even though we don't know the name of this vessel and we may never know its name, uh, we know it had to have been one of the ones uh, that was on this fleet of refugees. Chuck Mead is Director of Maritime Research for LAMP in St. Augustine. We also spoke with maritime historian Brendan Burke. Artifacts from the Loyalist shipwreck are on display at the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like our Florida Frontiers Festival, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
Ben, today we're talking about Hernando de Soto, one of the Spanish conquistadors who came to La Florida in the 16th century. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Hernando de Soto is probably one of the more well-known of the early Spanish conquistadors, the Spanish explorers that came to both North, Central, and South America, actually, uh, in the beginning of the 16th century. And de Soto had a very storied career long before even coming to Florida in 1539. He was born, uh, most scholars believe, right around the year 1500. So some debate whether uh, 1495, 1496, but, but generally the assumption is right around the year 1500. He was born in Spain to some means, but probably wasn't terribly wealthy. So like a lot of young men at that time period, this is he was young actually when the Spanish drove the Moors out of Spain. Uh, so he was part of this young kind of militant soldier sort of culture that was popular at that time. There were a lot of young men who were seeking their own personal fortunes either in Europe or for many of, the, of these young men, it was a more viable option to head to the New World, to head to Central, South, and, and later North America to seek one's own fortune and gold and silver. It was kind of that, that promised uh, land of riches. And de Soto was, was in that same vein. We know that he came to the New World sometime around 1520, probably a little bit earlier. So he was in his teens, actually, when he was part of early military expeditions into what is now Nicaragua and other parts of Central America, and then became fairly famous at that time period for his expeditions with Pizarro in Peru. And it was actually during that time period that he uh, rose through the military ranks and uh, started amassing a really a, a sizable fortune. And with that fortune, he came back to Spain in the early 1530s. He got married, he built a large home, and, and was fairly comfortable, but, but wanted actually to head back to the New World. He was involved in some uh, business ventures, some partnerships with other uh, Spanish soldiers, who were in Central America. So he secured an endorsement, essentially, to head back to the New World and explore Florida. Now, the Spanish were certainly familiar with Florida. Ponce de Leon had landed here in 1513, and there were several other expeditions uh, into the Florida Peninsula. And most of those expeditions were, were fairly unsuccessful. They weren't producing any gold. They had uh, ran into a lot of hostile interactions, and, and many of which were perpetrated by the Spanish, uh, or at least instigated by the Spanish. So there wasn't a whole lot to gain. So it's a little bit confusing. We're not really sure why de Soto did this. But he came to Florida in 1539, and uh, with about six hundred soldiers. And, and based on a lot of the contemporary historical accounts, it was a fairly well-planned out expedition. He studied from the failures of other conquistadors, and he really felt like this time was going to be a success. Uh, those famous last words, but he came to Florida in, in 1539, traversed what is now most of the present-day southeastern U.S., uh, as far north as probably the southern Appalachian Mountains, crossed the Mississippi River. In fact, he fell ill and, and died somewhere on the banks of the Mississippi River, and his body is, is still underneath the silt of the Mississippi. Mississippi probably today. Now you have here from the Florida Historical Society archive a rather sympathetic biography of DeSoto originally published in 1858. Yes, that's right. This is a, a book entitled The Life, Travels, and Adventures of Ferdinand de Soto, Discoverer of the Mississippi. This was published in 1858 by a gentleman named Lambert A. Wilmer, and he was originally from Philadelphia. He was in the literary scene in Philadelphia. He was a, uh, a friend of, of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, he wrote some poetry and a few other short stories, but it, it looks like this was really one of his most ambitious works. Now, why he decided to embark upon this biography of de Soto, we're not entirely sure. And and as you mentioned, it's a fairly sympathetic 
portrayal of DeSoto, which was uncommon for that time. Now, even in the 16th century, after DeSoto had uh, died, the few hundred survivors of the 600 people that were on the expedition, there were less than 300 who, who survived after he died. They made their way back to the Gulf of Mexico, eventually to what is now Mexico. And many of them stayed in Central America, but a few of them came back to Spain. And it was even at that time period, these fairly unflattering accounts of DeSoto began to surface. So a lot of the primary source documents that early Spanish uh, historians began using as the base for their chronicles of uh, Spanish exploration in the New World, they kind of lumped all of these conquistadors together. They were these brutes who were uh, slaughtering the Native Americans and seeking gold and fortune and all of that. But this account, especially in the 19th century, really departs from that interpretation. And Wilmer decided to look upon DeSoto in a very different light. Now, the problem with that, and when you dig through this book, the source material that he uses are essentially those early Spanish accounts that are fairly unflattering. But what he's trying to argue is, well, they didn't have it right. What they were trying to do was uh, put across essentially their own point of view. But through my interpretation of the sources, uh, according to Wilmer, I can I can alter that interpretation. And he's come up with kind of an interesting portrayal of, of DeSoto's life up to his death somewhere in, in North America. Now, we know some of the places where DeSoto traveled in Florida and the southeast United States, but his exact route is still disputed, right? Yes, that's right. And that's really still a matter of contention amongst historians and archaeologists. So, you know, the biography itself is is still something we can debate about. And, and we love biographies. For, for some reason, inherently, the, the biography of these great man figures, if you will, are, are fascinating. We want to know about the people. But this particular expedition is important for a lot of other reasons. As you said, the route itself is is of primary importance because these people in 1539, the, the Spanish explorers and, and folks who were along on those expeditions, were oftentimes the first Europeans to make contact with the indigenous groups that were living in, in what is now the southeastern U.S. In many instances, they were probably the last Europeans that those people ever made contact with, and they are representative of this Colombian exchange, uh, the exchange of, of ideas, of goods, but also disease, of warfare, of information. All of that is is beginning in the 16th century, and the DeSoto expedition is a, is a great example of that exchange. So for archaeologists and historians, if we can trace the exact route of the original expedition, uh, we can then unearth what have long since become these uh, invisible traces of indigenous life. So we can find out where these large-scale communities were. And in Florida, there's one site in particular, it's known as the Governor Martin site, just outside of, of downtown Tallahassee, within a stone's throw of the uh, the modern state capital in Tallahassee. We have archaeological proof of the 1539-1540 winter encampment site that DeSoto and his men stayed at over, over the course of the wintertime. And they were living amongst the Appalachian uh, Indians that were in that area. And there are several contemporary accounts that, that corroborate that that is the site, and they found pieces of metal and trade beads and a lot of other artifacts that point to that location. So it's really interesting. Now, now after that point, north of Tallahassee into Georgia, Alabama, and some of the other places in Arkansas, and especially along the Mississippi River, it's very difficult to prove exactly where the expedition was. But as science improves, as the source material becomes more available, hopefully in the future, uh, we might be able to narrow in on that exact route, at least of that expedition. Great. Well, fascinating as always, Ben. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. 
Florida folk music includes a long tradition of bluegrass music. Holly Baker has this look at bluegrass music in the Sunshine State. Bluegrass music has been called folk music and overdrive and that high and lonesome sound. Florida might not come to mind as a state with a strong bluegrass music tradition, but old time string band and bluegrass have deep roots in Florida. Bluegrass is a mainstay at the long running Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, Florida and at other festivals and jam sessions throughout the state. Bluegrass music takes its name from Kentuckian Bill Monroe and his band called the Bluegrass Boys, who created a high energy musical style in the early 20th century that combined elements of old time string band, big band and blues music. Bluegrass is also influenced by the musical stylings of Monroe's Uncle Penn, mandolinist Lester Flatt, and banjo picker Earl Scruggs. We recently discussed bluegrass music with 32-year-old East Tennessee bluegrass fiddler, violinist, guitarist, and orchestra conductor Derek Deacons. Deacons has played the violin since the age of five and the fiddle since the age of nine. As a professional musician, he has appeared numerous times on the Grand Ole Opry stage, and he has performed with the likes of Charlie Daniels, Mac Wiseman, the Osborne Brothers, Blake Shelton, and even Bill Monroe's son James. Deacons tells us more about bluegrass music. It's a hard-driving music. It's kind of a mixture of blues and fiddle tunes. And even Bill would say, you know, a lot of it came from his influence of being around uh, some of those blues guitar players that he was around growing up. So it's a, it's a heavy mixture of just hard-driving music with uh, a fiddle from Scotch-Irish tradition mixed in that he learned from his Uncle Penn. Fiddle tunes... And then, of course, a traditional bluegrass band, you're going to find the mandolin, banjo, bass, guitar, and fiddle. And sometimes you'll run into the dobro, which adds a, a, a new flavor to the style. I want to go back to see my daughter. I wonder if she's still free. To me, she's dear and sweet as honey. But is she still waiting for me? That's Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys performing Monroe's song called My Florida Sunshine at the 1993 Florida Folk Festival in White Springs. The father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, had numerous ties with Florida. Monroe performed at music festivals and events throughout the state, and in 1943 he bought his famous mandolin, a 1923 Gibson Lloyd Lore F5, after seeing it in a barbershop window in Miami, Florida. Monroe's most well-known song also has connections to Florida. Blue Moon of Kentucky was inspired by a large moon that Monroe saw over the highway while he was heading home after touring in Florida. It was on a moonlight night, the stars shining bright, and they whispered from on high, your love is said goodbye. Blue Moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and said goodbye.
Bluegrass music can still be heard in Florida, sometimes in unexpected places. The longest-running bluegrass jam in Florida occurs in a parking lot behind the Pizza Hut on West Colonial Drive in Ocoee, Florida. 74-year-old banjo picker Jack Lewis founded the Ocoee Parking Lot Bluegrass Jam with his wife Judy and their friend Cecil Parks Kimberly. You can usually find Jack, Judy, and other members of Moonlight Express at the jam, which takes place every Friday night and has done so for the last 25 years, weather permitting. sat down with Jack Lewis and he told us about his introduction to bluegrass music. And I was over at my mother's visiting and she was playing a bluegrass record, uh, namely Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs, and I kind of uh, just kind of fell in love with it. And she loaned me the record and I told my wife I was going to learn to play a five-string banjo and that's the way it started. Lewis also told us more about the folks who stopped by the Okoye parking lot bluegrass jam each week. We call them pickers and grinners, the people that's playing the music, picking, and the grinners over there listening and enjoying it. But a lot of couples, we think, would would come on Friday night because they didn't have much else to do, and uh, they looked forward to it every Friday night, so we enjoyed them being there, and we would play for them, play to them. We knew a lot of people. They would request songs, and we'd do it for them. Just having a good time, that's what it's all about. Bluegrass fiddler Derek Deacons recently dropped by the Okoye parking lot to play his fiddle with Jack Lewis and other bluegrass musicians who gathered there on a Friday night. says there's something about the Okoye parking lot bluegrass jam that keeps him coming back. If it boiled down to it, it would be the music. I mean, I love bluegrass, and I love being able to play it with people that know the same songs as me. But Okoye especially has just a, a great group of people that are friendly and welcoming. It's almost like going to a family reunion each week and talking to each other, not only about music, but things that are going on in your life. It just becomes a, a real friendship and connection with the community. Bluegrass, the style of music created in the Kentucky Hills nearly 100 years ago, is still alive at bluegrass jams and festivals throughout Florida. For the past 25 years, on Friday nights at dark 30, you can even find it in a parking lot in Ocoee. Just follow the sound of Jack Lewis's banjo. Seen a lot of changes. Uh, gonna see some more probably. But hopefully the bluegrass jam will hang in there. We're still having fun.
For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.